once such technologies start modifying the individual then are you still talking to the individual who was there before they were modified by these technologies and what if the actions they take are against what they would have done had they not had this technology implemented thank you krishnan really appreciate you being part of change i am possible which is india's first future tech podcast so for my guests who don't really know about you i'm going to give them a little brief on who uh, krishnan is so so uh, krishnan tyagarajan is a research scientist in the hardware systems laboratory at park his field of expertise lies in the physics and material science of nanophotonic systems he's engaged in applied electromagnetic research for application including in the biomedical clean energy and optical device sectors there's other areas of interest into biomimetic systems which i'm really excited about energy harvesting scavenging and my space which is augmented reality and he's currently the principal investigator for parks non invasive brain computer interface they are amongst the six companies that is being funded by darpa's program called the next generation non surgical neurotechnology short for nt for which darpa has given a four year deadline period so uh, krishnan thank you really appreciate you we part of change and possible so for the people who don't really know about what brain computer in- interface is so can you please start there tell us what a brain computer interface is and what 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 is an invasive to a non invasive bci what i would start at is at a level where you have a broader class of systems called human machine interfaces so that does not necessarily have to be brain uh, it could be any other part of the body and the machine need not be a computer it could be something mechanical it could be something electrical but not necessarily something which computes so the broad system of things called human machine interfaces has a number of smaller segments and one of them happens to be brain computer interfaces and you can imagine the reason why brain computer interfaces have taken such a forefront in terms of research is because the brain is 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 the computing part that we have in our head and in our system and the analogous part is the computer that you have in the in the physical non biological world so brain computer interfaces essentially would consist of a means of figuring out what the brain is sort of speaking if you will translating that and sensing that by a set of electronics and sensors on board shifting that knowledge to a computer which then uses advanced um techniques such as machine learning and artificial intelligence in order to really understand uh with the models that have been built as to what the brain is trying to convey and then correspondingly translate that into an actionable uh, outcome so you can think of the situation that uh, someone is thinking that they want to say um move a certain limb uh and the 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 sensors pick that intent up from the brain translate that into the the idea that person wants to move an object and then that is acted upon a robot for example or their own hand in case it's a it's sort of a completely human interface and in these systems you have um what are called invasive and non invasive and there's a third category in between which people tend to call either minimally invasive or partially invasive and the the idea behind the three is that of course in principle the most ideal situation would be where you have no surgery nothing done into your head you can literally wear something and directly be connected to your system of interest but the way things started out initially um 
And then sort of the first time, I think in 1924, Ansberger was uh, able to record EEG signals. Uh, that sort of kick-started the idea of, okay, there is something the brain is speaking. And if we pay close attention enough, you can make sense of it and maybe take action on what, it, what sort of uh, conversations are going on in the head. So um, invasive technologies started to pick up early on in the beginning because of the fact that uh, there were a lot of concerns that needed to be addressed in the medical domain. So you needed to, for example, figure out how to help and rehabilitate people who have suffered from stroke, people who have suffered from a major spinal cord injury, uh, people who suffer from Parkinson's and so on and so forth. And these um, involve the need to actually have a surgery done in a process known as craniotomy, where you essentially open up the skull and then access the inner parts of the, of the brain. Now, the completely invasive or the invasive devices that most people talk about include things like electrode arrays. It could include um, in, in sort of preclinical trials, even things like graphene uh, electrodes that people use. But those essentially start plugging themselves into the brain. So they go through the skull and then they go into the brain tissue. You have the next level of minimally invasive or partially invasive where you still have to unfortunately do craniotomy, that is open up the skull, but then the sensors or the stimulators that you have lie on the surface of the brain. So they don't really poke into the tissue, but it suffices that they are close to the brain and inside the skull. And then the, the sort of most lucrative, if you will, or the most um, uh, acceptable to a larger audience is a non-invasive system where it would be something where you, you essentially wear it um, as, for example, a helmet, and you can use a bunch of electronics to dial in the sensors and the stimulators in your helmet to read out and write into your brain. So, of course, each of these has their own pros and cons, uh, as, as you can imagine. And so what people use would depend on the, the interest. Right, right. So, so, so brain, I think, you know, we have 80 billion neurons and 100 trillion synapses, 80 billion odd neurons. And, and, and they, they, that, that's what makes us us, right? How they fire and wire. All of five senses is an output of how our cognitive structure functions, right? And somehow that is still the least known part of a human body. At this point in time, some of the biggest names in the world have actually all jumped in and trying to understand brain. And I would give, like to give out a shout out to Brian Johnson. I think he's a hero in this field because he is the one who's kind of like pushed it up there and said, we need to understand this part. If we understand a brain, how it fires and wires, because somehow if we know that it, it's, it's almost like a language or like how we speak, it, even the brain, how it fires and wires has a language. And if we understand that, and if we are able to map it on a computer, I mean, that would be like super awesome for uh, us as a human species, right? So, so how much do we currently know about a brain and what research or technology, whether it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, what are the interfaces which could accelerate the understanding of a human brain? Of course, the brain is an extremely complex system. So it's hard to really, as you correctly point out, figure out everything about the brain. And it's, we, we are 
a very we have understood a very small fraction of what there is to be understood. Um, but having said that, you can think of the analogy that often you can exploit a system or use a system without necessarily knowing all the details. So I think the interesting thing about brain-machine interfaces in general, brain-computer interfaces, that it brings together a lot of interdisciplinary work. It could be neuroscientists, it could be physicists, electrical engineers, material scientists, because you have to make uh, what appears to be a rigid system to work in synchrony with an extremely soft, supple, moist, warm system, which is the biological tissue, and make sense of that at a complexity which is, which is non-trivial. So when these different branches of science come together to solve any given neuroscience problem, I think each of them brings their own skill sets, expertise, and points of interest in terms of what they want to understand at the end of the day. Um, if you look at neuroscientists who come into the brain-machine interface or brain-computer interface domain, a lot of their interest lies in, as you said, figuring out what the brain is, how it works, what are the hidden parts, can you sort of... Um, break down the response to the brain in order to figure out, hey, okay, if a person is happy, this is what is going to be the outcome. And so if I sense that this is what is lighting up in his brain, that means he's definitely happy, whether or not he shows it on his face. Uh, you have also psychologists and psychiatrists who come because um, unfortunately, as much as technology has become ubiquitous in society, we have also sort of it has taken a toll on, on, um, on, on our ability to actually um, maybe be uh, as organic as we used to several decades or maybe 100 years ago. And so there's an increasing problem of um, mental disorders that is afflicting society for a number of issues. And in order to treat those effectively, you need to have quantitative uh, information available. You need to have quantitative uh, tools to be able to actually act on your information. And so psychiatrists look at brain-computer interfaces as a means of actually helping assuage people's mental issues and figuring out a bit more about the brain. Because as much as psychological issues, for example, are uh, kept aside from physical illnesses, they are pretty much uh, as, as, realist, I mean, as, as real to the people undergoing the problem as a physical illness. So people are developing quantitative tools for that. Me as a physicist, I think um, I'm interested in developing the tools and, and understanding how sort of the brain works, but I don't necessarily need to know the exact details of the wirings of the, the system in order to, to make the maximum use of it. Uh, and it suffices to know a certain amount of level of detail in order to take action on any intelligence that you figure out. Having said that, I think as the technology has progressed over the last several decades, you've had a number of thrusts, <clears throat> including in the domains of material science, nanotechnology, electrical engineering, signal processing, which have all significantly enabled push what I would call textbook science to actually lab uh, or market-driven uh, research. Um, and so that has given a lot of tools that have allowed us to understand more of the brain. And it, it's sort of a, it's like a chicken and egg, if you will, where you use the brain um, as, a, as an end to actually develop a tool to access it. 
but then the tools that you develop are used to actually understand the brain even more. So they, there's sort of a momentum being picked up right now where technologies that are developed are quickly translated into uh, work that can be done on the brain to understand the brain better, which then helps develop better technology, which then helps develop a better understanding of the brain. So I think it's an exciting time to be working in this domain, uh, but there is still a, a while to go before we can confidently say that we've understood a significant amount of the brain. Yeah, I wish you guys, everyone, very best for it because, yes, like you said, I mean, we, we, we've understood so little of a brain and in the future when we are able to map what a brain does, I mean, there is so much which might open up, you know, I mean, so much that we don't know. Like, for example, you said, now we have the technology or tool to peep into the brain, brain kind of understand, you know, you know, if you're somebody, if you're happy, now those are the neurons which are firing. If you're sad, those are the neurons which, which are firing. If you're depressed, now that those are the specific, uh, you know, bunch of neurons which are going bonkers. Now, if we understand that, what is the best way to stimulate those parts or maybe, you know, you know, make sure that we could possibly treat those patients who are depressed or, you know, make people happy. So what, what, what's the best possible approach? That's, that's also a, a, a very nice way to look at it. So um, let's take, for example, psychological illnesses or uh, psychiatric problems right now. Um, currently, the ways that people use to... Um, assuage the problems of the patients is using chemical drugs um, and which which are effective because people to a certain extent have started to understand the, the pathways that operate in the brain and that affect unnecessary recursive thoughts for example or repeated firing of a certain region of the brain which makes the person go in loops um, you can think of brain computer interfaces potentially as a new form of an electronic drug, which essentially you can dial into and tune things like dosage, you can tune things like frequency. And with the advanced automated systems that have come in the in sort of manifested right now, you can even have things like closed loop systems, which have used sensors on your brain to detect your, your mental state, for example. They use some sort of a machine learning AI algorithm to figure out that, okay, this person is in a mood which might trigger a certain unwanted action or might trigger um, an epileptic reaction, for example. And so it automatically then sends a signal to the stimulators as a part of the, the system which the, the patient is wearing in order to trigger or suppress the firing of certain parts of the brain. So you can think of it as a, as a closed loop system, which is constantly monitoring your state and affecting you. But having said that, I think there are a number of technologies that have really pushed the limits of what is achievable right now. Of course, in order to have any technology validated and applicable to humans and rigorous approvals, it has to go a number of clinical trials. But if you look at just the preclinical work that is being done, um, even in things, uh, e even sort of in, in, um, in scenarios where you're looking at animal studies, you have a lot of work done in the, in the domain of genetics. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's the yes, idea. That, yes. Um, and so there has been a lot of very interesting 
scientific work done on that in 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 the likes of for example stimulating a certain memory of an event that never occurred so i think if you look back maybe 50 years ago people would have thought that such sort of technologies are are just out of the realm of science fiction it's not going to happen in reality but people have started looking at such manifestations in 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 animals uh, in of course preclinical these are far from humans but that sort of shows you the power of such technologies and how they can potentially redefine what we feel to be our reality um and that's sort of one extreme of technology which will take a while for it to be applicable to humans but you can think of other technologies like electrode arrays ultrasound uh transcranial magnetic stimulation which are all techniques which essentially are a mix of invasive and non-invasive and they are mature enough that they are used for a number of treatments already to to suppress or trigger parts of the brain on demand so i think technology is definitely reaching uh close to what people would like uh, would like to explore in theory there's still a gap which needs to be filled but i think the gap is narrowing down Right. So, so can you please explain to my audience what optogenetics is? And and you also uh, mentioned about graphene electrodes. Uh, electrodes. So maybe maybe you can just talk about these two. Sure. So uh, optogenetics is is an extremely interesting idea that was developed uh, a while ago at Stanford, and the idea was that you can genetically modify a number of cells in order to express. proteins which are triggered by light so you can imagine the case that you have for example a mouse uh, in whose brain you have undertaken this process of genetic modification which is um which is not a which is not a very complex project uh, process now that it's been uh, become so mature you then use light in order to trigger the firing of those cells or the suppression of those cells which essentially translates to the fact that i can either turn on the switch or turn off the switch on 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 my own volition and this is extremely interesting because the advances in brain uh, science have become so much that people know very well uh, what sort of regions of the brain to trigger for example to make a mouse turn clockwise to make a mouse turn anti clock to induce things like uh to to suppress things like anxiety that you can literally tailor make um the genetic modification in order to induce certain forms of behavioral change in the, in the animal um i think for that to be applicable to humans there is still some amount of uh, validation that would need to be done but if you look at the other question that you raised of graphene it's an extremely interesting material which has been uh a favorite of a number of people in material science physics uh, chemistry and now more and more because of its electrical and thermal properties and the fact that it's such a thin layer people are using that to be almost two dimensional electrodes in order to trigger parts of the brain or to record from parts of the brain so because the brain is such any organic tissue is has an extremely low sort of stiffness compared to say silicon or wood or any other man made material the closer the material properties of the sensor or stimulator are to the brain when inserted inside the brain the more acceptable it is to the body and the less 
adverse reactions it will produce. So graphene has this huge advantage of being extremely thin, uh, malleable, can be made into sheets, and can both stimulate and record, uh, giving it a huge advantage over the more conventional but much more tested and much more accepted uh, electrode arrays, for example. Right. So, so uh, you know, I mean, I, I have... Uh, read about you know how the the c elegant worms you know it, it has somewhere around 320 or 300 odd neurons how they 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 have been completely uh, researched upon and we understand how it fires and wires and it was also uploaded on a connectome you know and, and, and the connectome behaved exactly like the uh, the the, the, real, uh, the real or the physical C. elegant worm. So I know about that, but you know, the advances in BCI is like you said, I mean, it, it is growing phenomenally. And this was, I believe, I think around six or seven years back, you know, when the, some, somebody had attempted something like that. So yes, you said, you know, we are experimenting with, uh, you know, like your rats, dogs, monkeys. So what are the insights that you have got from invasive BCI? Who are the leaders who are fronting uh, something like that? And where do you see that technology going? As you, as you pointed out correctly, to translate anything from animal studies to eventually human studies is a non-trivial long process. But the reason why animal studies are done are to get insights and learnings into what can be applied to humans. So with the uh, number of scientific sort of research experiments that have been done so far, there has been a significant improvement in the material compatibility to begin with. So earlier, people would, would literally put silicon shanks in. They would put electrode arrays, which would be extremely stiff and would not last long inside the tissue. These animal studies have definitely given a boost to the type of materials that are being considered for human trials. The other thing is that um, with the ability to actually access sensor signals and uh, stimulate parts of the brain for a, a reasonably complex animal such as a mouse, you need to also be able to do real-time computation signal processing in order to figure out, okay, what is the brain saying? What is the next step that I need to do? And that platform has given a lot of impetus to improve such techniques of, of machine learning where you're not starting with a complex system like a, a human brain, but you're still starting with a very complex system like a mouse brain and improving things like reducing the latency between figuring out what the brain is doing and then taking the next action or stimulating the brain and then measuring that, okay, that stimulus has actually done what it needs to do. So on a, on a much smaller scale with a reasonably large complexity, people are progressing towards uh, an integrated system that gives them a lot of access to what they would like in, in humans in, in the long run. Um, as far as experts are concerned, I'd say that there are a number of labs uh, and more so right now a number of companies which are pushing, trying to push the envelope of, of bringing technology from the lab to the market. And I think you can look at long-term audience of such brain-machine interfaces to be of sort of two, three broad kinds. So one of them could be people who actually need it for medical cases and medical situations. For them, I think, uh, depending on the complexity of the situation, a few of them might be willing to go for 
much more non-invasive stuff if it gives them a much better quality of life. The other sort of extreme is brain-machine interfaces for entertainment, for example. And you can think of having um, a VR system which incorporates some sort of a brain-machine interface and gives the person a much more realistic experience in terms of a an, an multi-sensory experience, which is not possible if you just display something in a, in a, in a screen. For them, I don't know, so there might be a still a fraction of people who would be willing to undergo an invasive surgery, but the, the type of the market that you would sort of cater to or the type of audience that would accept the technology would really weigh risk versus reward. And I think the, the sort of the more invasive technologies I foresee being more applicable to the medical cases than for the, the entertainment or, or um, augmentation cases, if you will. But having said that, there are still a number of cases in, in, in any technology that you pick up where there are these leader, leading adopters who would be willing to undertake any sort of surgery in order to be the first to experiment with such devices. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I've been invested in the virtual reality space since early 2016. And the reason I got to, got into it was because I was excited of, uh, or I wanted to one day be able to at least be either a part of it or, or build a, a full dive VR experience. And I guess, I mean, what, what's going to enable that would be brain computer interface. And, and I, 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 I'm, I'm very sure that's maybe around uh, four to five decades away or maybe less, but give and take, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, <laughs> you, 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 you cannot predict, but I believe it's somewhere around that, that that's the timelines. I, and I think brain computer interface will be, play a big role in, in pushing virtual reality forward. As far as the, the invasive part I, I'm sure by that time we'll figure out something which will be non-invasive and, and uh, which will be much better uh, talking about non-invasive uh, you are behind the principal investigator behind building the non-invasive BCI uh, at uh, Park so can you talk about uh, what you're building and what's your vision behind it sure so um what we are building is, uh, this is with our collaborators at Stanford, we are building a non-invasive uh, brain stimulation device. So if you, if you want to call it, you can think of it as a write-in device, which is able to write into your brain non-invasively. Um, that is to either excite or suppress parts of the brain on demand. And this, the, the technology that we are pushing forth involves a mix of using ultrasound and uh, electromagnetics. So ultrasound technologies for brain, uh, brain interfacing, if you will, has started or has become much more mature in the domain of ablation. So you can think of ultrasound to ablate brain tumors, to ablate certain parts of the tissue of the brain that, that is actually dysfunctioning, for example. Uh, there is a shifting trend to use those capabilities learned with that process in stimulating without the intent of causing any sort of destruction. And the reason why ultrasound is extremely interesting is that it can go deep into the brain. It is an extremely mature technology that allows you to uh, selectively stimulate extremely small focal volumes and use multiple arrays of transducers in order to actually steer the beam in order to make any sort of complex spatiotemporal pattern that you would like. <clears throat> a 
and sorry the, the the magnetic part of it is very interesting because if you if you think of it in like the the physicist perspective a neuron is like a charge like current carrying wire so uh electromagnetics immediately comes pops up because you can think of influencing the way current is carried in a wire using electromagnetics so it's a combination of ultrasound and electromagnetics that we're using in order to affect the firing or inhibition of neurons through a uh, mechanistic or uh, pressure sensitive ion channels right so so you, what when you're building this what are the applications that you you uh, foresee are coming out of your non invasive bci that's a very good question so um, for example park as an institution which is located in palo alto started out in 1970 and has been a pioneer in actually user interfaces and a, a lot of human centric technology that we're using in fact even things like the ethernet was invented at park the mouse uh, the laser printer so park has had this history of actually developing technology that brings people closer together if you will and what we see for example um is as you correctly pointed out a larger and larger role of such brain interfaces in helping interface with either humans or other other machines um it could be things like recreating uh situate I mean, scenarios much more realistically like in the vr case you can also think of uh training people to uh understand certain types of signals to imply something so for example you can give them an extra capability to to understand a language of stimulation of the brain which is not intuitive but which they can learn by by figuring out okay that when when this i i sense this in my brain if you will that means i i should be doing this for example so it's 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 a subliminal way of communicating and, and again it comes down to the idea of user interfaces that brings technology easier to access for humans uh, and brings people closer together by interaction right you said extra capability right so what what, what are the moral or ethical implication you see arising from something like this you know when we have like a brain computer interface a working brain computer interface at this point in time what it does is, is that obviously the ones who are uh, uh, you have a medical history i mean it, it, it's for them and they go for the the really invasive ones because you know it's uh, it, it really helps them but yeah. this technology is growing and when it kind of matures what do you see the moral and ethical implications arising out of something a technology like this that is also an extremely good question and i think um it's a question that uh, the entire community is cognizant of uh, in all the conferences that i've attended so far there's almost always one session on neuroethics looking at the implications of such technologies in society at large and the nice thing about that is it brings together again philosophers uh, lawyers uh, social scientists ethnographers and i i think you can have the understanding of okay what is augmenting a human capability you might even consider things like spectacles to be an augmentation of human capability because as people grow older naturally their eyesight would decline but now i have a device that i'm wearing that gives me extra powers over someone else my age whose eyesight might be weaker um 
So there are, I think, various levels of ethical concerns. One of them is sort of legal in terms of, okay, what is augmentation, what is permitted? But I, I, I believe that in terms of ethical concerns, there, is, there are a lot of open-ended questions that need, need tying up. And it involves the, uh, the, the presence of governments, of industry, of scientists, of, of civil society, in order to figure out sort of the limits of utilization of such devices, what would be the fine line dividing the creator and the creation, if you will. So you can think of brain-machine interfaces as being created by us, but if you foresee that it has the capability of influencing my own thoughts, then it's actually changing me rather than me changing it. So then the roles reverse and it becomes the, the, sort of the creator and I become its creation. And I think where that fine line is, uh, is something that needs to be carefully considered. Um, especially because I think unlike other sort of uh, physical medical technology, this te any technology that interfaces with someone's personality or ability to interact with others from, from the definition of who they are needs to be very carefully considered because once such technologies start modifying the individual, then are you still talking to the individual who was there before they were modified by these technologies? And what if the actions they take are against what they would have done had they not had this technology implemented. So there's a lot of ethical questions that come up. A lot, some of them are similar to what you would consider even for um, self-driving cars. For example, who is responsible if a self-driving car has to choose between hitting a child versus hitting an elderly patient? Um, in, in a similar sense, if you have um, a brain-machine interface the subsequent actions taken by the person who is responsible. Is it the person? Is it the company that built the device? Is it the ethical board that manages uh, certification of such devices? I think there are a lot of open-ended questions which will, which will get sorted out in due course. Right. You know, these are like really, really deep questions, you know, because and I think we need to come together as a collective and address those questions because we are the cusp of the fourth industrial revolution. And if you see almost all of those disruptive technologies have the potential to transform mankind. And you rightfully pointed out technology is a double edged sword, right? I mean, in the hands of a good human, it can create magic for the entire society. And in the hands of somebody who's not with the right intention can also create a dystopian future, right? So, you, you know, there are, there are, like I pointed out earlier, there are people like Brian Johnson who's really push driving this conversation. This, and obviously there is Elon Musk who, who's raising awareness about uh, the, this technology and this need to kind of invest in it, research in it, build and come together because this technology can transform mankind. So, so, so tell me, I mean, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, uh, how important uh, a role is artificial intelligence playing in uh, brain computer interface or understanding brain? And, and do you think that if we kind of understand our brain, will it play a role in enabling the conversation forward to being an artificial general intelligence? Okay, so 
um, artificial intelligence is sort of a, a tool that has been developed out of inspiration provided from how the, the brain works. Having said that, I don't think, um, again, uh, it's, it's sort of a, a domain which literally is trying to mimic uh, the, the, the complexity of connections that you would have in the human brain to reproduce the human brain in silico, if you will. Having said that, I think AI as such is an extremely useful potential tool in order to get a grasp of handling the complexity of data that comes out from, from the brain. So the brain is an amazingly powerful instrument because it, despite doing so much that it does, it consumes only 20 watts of power. Uh, and uh, it is surprisingly efficient considering that even for a simple thing like figuring out a cat amongst a thousand different images uh, with machine learning, you need to spend a significant amount of computational power to do that and train the system before it actually figures that out. So AI and machine learning, although they're sort of two separate topics, I think both will play a crucial role in being able to get a better grasp of the brain, but also helping develop more efficient tools that can interface with the brain. Um, as far as going into artificial general intelligence is concerned, I think there is the AI domain is sort of not intentionally trying to converge to mimicking the brain completely. And the brain, uh, sort of the neuroscience community is also not looking at AI as, a, as an inspiration to see what the brain might look like if it were to be just broken down into wires and nodes and, and what you will. But together, they, they can mutually help each other out because a lot of AI and machine learning progress depends on the understanding of how the brain works. How does it sort of figure out the concept of, uh, of appleness or, or blueness, for example, uh, which, which was non-trivial to do the first time it was done. At the same time, I think, the brain in order to, if you consider it as something which is communicating with the outside world, in order to efficiently extract the maximum amount of information that it wants to convey in a form that we can understand, AI and ML will, will be really useful in doing that, simply because also the amount of data that comes out of the brain is humongous. And if you want to take any real-time actionable uh, work on that, it needs to have uh, the backup of an extremely powerful AI ML tool. Right. You, you said we are not working on the AI researchers are not working on mimicking the brain, but somehow it feels like virtual reality. All that we're trying to do is mimic the, the physical reality, right? I mean, we be working on mimicking how we hear sound, you know, right from your stereo sound, we're trying to get into ambisonic spatial sound, how we can like move your left. And when we move to our left, we get the, the sound from that side more clearly with, with, uh, with a visual. We, we're trying to uh, mimic how exactly your eyes see, you know, uh, to how we side sound, smell, touch, whatever what virtual reality is doing is nothing but trying to mimic a physical reality so somehow i feel if we do that same with our brain if we kind of understand that we will we, we will open up some uh, really really 
uh, huge Pandora's box. So, so what are the some of the applications that current applications at this uh, time, a point of time, for or invasive to or non-invasive uh, BCI that excites you the most? Okay, uh, um, so. Just briefly touching upon the concept of reality, um, the fact that the speed of sound is so different from the speed of light, you can literally take that to uh, pose the question that how is it that the brain is creating a worldview that is consistent when, in principle, the sight of something should have reached me before the sound does, but I still see it occur almost simultaneously. So the brain itself is doing a lot of computation in what we believe or perceive to be reality in order to give us a consistent worldview. And I don't think that you can pull yourself out of that scenario and see what the sort of absolute objective reality would be like, because it's hard to, I mean, it goes into the sort of philosophical uh, debate of what is reality and does the moon exist when you're not looking at it, sort of the, the typical questions. But I think uh, as a means of uh, recreating as close to a realistic experience as possible, I think that that could be a, a nice objective of such devices because very often you have uh, memories from the past, good memories or nostalgic associations or I don't know, you want to recreate the smell of something that, that your mother cooked when you were a child. And having technology that can help you recreate that at the click of a button in a much more realistic manner is something which is really amazing. Um, and, and I think sort of many of the applications that would be mass consumable would cater to that aspect of uh, entertainment and creating a sense of recreating something from the past or augmenting something as, as a sensory experience. So if you were to categorize that into invasive and non-invasive, I think the invasive kind would, unless it shows a, a significantly huge um, bonus, would still remain in the realm of the, the medical domain, uh, except for those who want to adopt it, the early adopters who are sort of exploring technologies. One has to definitely keep in mind that invasive technologies, despite being invasive, have much higher resolution, much higher spatial and temporal resolution than non-invasive devices. So there is definitely already a, an edge that invasive technologies have over non-invasive technologies. But you can imagine that non-invasive technologies might be useful in, as you say, one of them could be recreating a realistic experience in VR, where you're able to have sight, sound, smell, touch, and taste. So, so far you can actually, there are a lot of shops that have um, VR experience, which includes haptic suits and that can actually make you feel and sense uh, the touch or the push of any object. But imagine you go to the next level that you can actually also smell and taste the object uh, without the object actually being there. Uh, as sort of scary as it sounds, as uh, it, I think it's really exciting to see that you can recreate something of that sort. Because <clears throat> sorry, I think the the ways that technology can help our lives uh, sort of in 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 a way which is making us 
mentally at a sort of better situation, if you will, whether it be through entertainment, whether it be through recreating memories, is something that, that brain-machine interfaces could find a huge application space in. There are already a number of companies that are selling um, devices that, that are purposely helping improve performance, improve athletic performance, memory, muscle memory, and so on and so forth. I think that's sort of just the beginning, but um, without going into sort of too many details of really distinguishing the, the valid scientific output with non-scientific output, I think that domain would definitely find a, a lot of uh, use in the non-invasive space. Right, very okay. good. I mean, I'm going to jump a little bit, uh, I mean, linger on to the, the virtual reality and augmented reality space, you know, because you yourself are uh, vested in uh, the building an AR uh, a, a, a interface, you know, the movie Spider-Man, I mean, you know, the, the, the last movie of Spider-Man, you know, the Edith glasses which uh, uh, Tony Stark uh, gives Spider-Man. How long do you think, how far are we, will we be something uh, from uh, something like that? That's a good question. Um, I think the, if you were to imagine there being a device in the future which can extremely realistically in real time recover all the textures, the colors, the smells and everything, that would be a tough ask. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it, it would be a tough ask to do simply because of the computational power that you need to recreate things. Um, but then having said that, I think there are always uh, these leaps by which technology moves forward when, when people suddenly find that uh, there is something that they've been overlooking and that suddenly gives them a much more uh, realistic technology or much more realistic experience as compared to the previous generation ones. And I can see such leaps happening definitely over the next uh, decade or, or more where uh, you would have much more relatable technology that's being developed. Having said that, I think as we started in the beginning, the brain itself is, is still being understood. And so it's not that evident where you can read out a person's brain signals when he or she is undergoing an experience and say that, uh -huh, okay, this part is being excited because he's smelling, I don't know, the roses. This part is being excited because he sees a cup of coffee there. Uh, so breaking down reality into a component of signals and then using that to recreate the reality is going to be a, a tough mapping, if you will. But I can see approaching some semblance of what might be uh, sort of living an experience in, in a parallel life as just as a means of entertainment. Um, and I think where it's interesting is that uh, one would have to consider the implications as we talked about earlier also about okay what if someone goes into this reality with an extremely realistic brain stimulation system where he or she feels that that is more real than the real world uh, and, and or, or he or she feels more comfortable there than being in the real world so uh, those sort of questions will definitely start popping up in, in the near future because you can already see technology approaching limits of uh, recreating things or addressing things in the brain that we never thought we could a decade ago. Right. Yeah. So, yes, I, I think we're living in the most awesome time in human history. Just close to 40 or 50 years back, computers were as big as my room. 
you know and uh, 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 you know so but you know the, the technology is growing on an exponential space and at this point in time i think what these disruptive technology is doing is, is that i think in another few decades it is going to shatter everything that we thought was impossible and and that's the reason for my show that's the reason my, my show is called change i am possible because i believe that we living in a fantastic world where uh, the only thing that you restricted by is the limitations you put on yourself A- and i think impossible is nothing like i was having this conversation with uh, this doctor who's who's figured out a way to reverse aging through young blood tra- uh, transfusion then i i, I was uh, having a conversation with somebody in quantum computing and and, and i'm whoever i talk to there is so much i get to know and every single day and every single conversation my belief gets stronger that we are living in a world where everything is possible and due course of time whatever we term impossible right now will be shattered because i think a, a, a human belief i think is the most important thing and that's the reason if you see you know the, these novelists these authors these creative movie makers they always show you what is in the realm of possibility by writing about it or showing it in the movies and, and then there are these scientists or researchers and they say oh wow he said that's a possible now let me just go and look back at the physics of the science of it you know and oh wow it, it actually doesn't seem that uh, impossible and and so i personally believe that impossible is nothing so so can you talk about parks legacy work on user interface and how you are building on that to define future brain machine interfaces sure so uh, just just would i like to quote um, arthur c clark who is a very well known uh, science science writer who said that um, if sort of if a distinguished scientist tells you that something is possible then he is very certainly true but if they tell you something is impossible then he is very likely wrong um, and that sort of the spirit with uh, which i think a lot of um science and technology development takes place in the sense not of of um a sort of a, a healthy skepticism where you believe that what is so far has not been possible might be possible in the future um and so park has been sort of consistently aiming at um making technologies that are have not been thought of before but which in due course become so common place that you cannot think of living without them even take for example laser printers the mouse the ethernet uh, graphical user interface a lot of these technologies are what are the foundations that have allowed the building of more advanced stuff that allow me to have this conversation with you right now so i think parks legacy of making user interfaces that are genuinely uh, sort of amicable to 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 a, a regular usage is something that is um, manifesting in this idea of 
of, of user interfaces with brain brain uh, computer interfaces and it could be for example that in in the future office uh, you think of a tool that allows you to be much more productive uh, and simultaneously be in touch with a lot of your other colleagues for example at the same time in you know in a form where you know it allows you to be in the network rather than on the network so it's sort of you you literally immerse yourself inside it by the use of such technologies and i think the the importance of having such technologies is highlighted right now in in the in the current situation of the the covid-19 where everyone is sort of working from home what used to be earlier considered a luxury that okay i i don't have to go to the office building i work from home now everyone is being sort of forced to do it but at the same time that there is this realization that i'm missing that realistic office interaction i am missing that uh that that sort of 3d feel of things of moving around and being in some place and knocking on someone's door and having an interesting conversation and i think if you can if you can enable a technology that allows you to be remotely sitting anywhere you want but feel as realistic as being literally in your own office and opening the door moving to some place knocking on someone's door having a meeting pulling a chair sitting down that would be a, a significant achievement um and 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 something which can find a long term ubiquitous usage uh, as as sort of a, as common place as saying let's xerox this document for example right yeah so so yes i i think we living in exciting times and somehow most of the technologies na it, it, it's we it when it gets so common we we don't even give it importance and and that's when it gets ubiquitous you know it's there everywhere and we don't really you know right now we keep on hopping about artificial intelligence virtual reality and stuff like that but i think in a new future it'll be just part of who we are what we do how we live work and play so so krishna uh, it was a pleasure talking to you uh, i personally am super excited about brain computer interface mainly because i think it'll play a main a major part in enabling virtual reality into being what it intends to be you know right now we we, we just uh, kind of understanding the technology and, and there are these obviously these drawbacks these hardware software drawback i believe brain computer interface will play a huge role in enabling what virtual reality can and should be no so i am excited because of that what are you excited about the future of uh, brain computer interface and what's your moonshot okay so uh, there are a number of things that excite me as far as science and technology are concerned but in particular what has interested me in in brain computer interfaces is the use of it as a tool to really probe um ourselves because at the end of the day i think um uh, subconsciously a lot of people the the sort of the understanding or the intent is 
to bring peace and happiness on ourselves. But then if you go to the next level of asking, okay, but who are we? Like, who is the person who is feeling happy? Those sort of questions which start to hit upon more philosophical topics. I think two, three decades ago, one would have thought, okay, they would be in the realm of philosophy. But now with the advent of such brain-computer interfaces and technology, you can actually probe things like states of, of, of awareness of a person. You can probe things like emotions. You can probe things like uh, the, 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 the difference in the facial expression versus what they're actually feeling inside. And if you, if you think of the, the extreme extrapolation of this, which is the concept of uh, qualia, which is the fact that what I am experiencing right now I cannot fully transfer to you because you cannot have the experience of everything that I've experienced so far to build on that and feel what I'm feeling. But imagine a situation where you can literally take a person's personality, uh, mental state of mind, and at the click of a button, be like, okay, you know what? This is what I'm feeling like. Can you feel what I'm feeling right now? That concept of being able to transfer the the complete experience that I am feeling to someone else is something which is very interesting technology-wise, but also sort of philosophy-wise, it gives an insight into who we are, um, what makes us happy, and what what sort of at the end of the day brings us peace. So I think for me, it's sort of an understanding of philosophy as well as of, of, of practical physics applications of such devices. Lovely, lovely. Christian, thank you. Really appreciate you giving time and sharing your insight. I personally am super excited about BCI. Even right now, it's enabling the physically physically disabled or physically challenged. And you said, I mean, what it can do, you know, like transfer experiences, transfer thoughts, you know, maybe like a hive mind where we are all connected. We're living in exciting times and we're just probing the possibilities of what can a brain computer interface can really do. And, and let me end with this note where uh, Elon Musk keeps on stressing artificial intelligence is growing at an extremely rapid space and there is a need for us to, if we need to stay relevant, I think we need to converge with machines. It might sound a little harsh to the people who are not very technologically inclined, but I guess that's the truth and that's the fact. And we need to listen to leaders like that. And we need to build these brain-computer interface if we have to stay relevant. Krishnan, uh, 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 really appreciate you being part of Change I Am Possible podcast. And to my listeners, if you like what you see in here, please press the subscribe button. Thank you, Krishnan, really appreciate you being part of Change I Am Possible podcast. Thank you, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me over.